Here is Pastor Steve Converse to begin today's broadcast of Graceful Truth. Here in chapter 2, with with great clarity, Paul begins to point out that the ethical, the moral person without Christ, whether you're Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter, they will find themselves in the same hell as the pagan idolatry. Hi there, and welcome to Graceful Truth from Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. We're in Romans chapter 2, looking at the first five verses, God's righteous judgments. And based upon all we saw in chapter 1, you begin to see why God is righteous in his judgment. But there are answers, as we'll see. Join us. This is Graceful Truth, our teacher and pastor now. Here's Pastor Steve Converse. You can turn over, turn over to uh, Romans. <laughs> Romans chapter 2. We're starting Romans chapter 2 today. And we'll be spending a couple weeks on the uh, subject matter of God's righteous judgment. And I know that uh, we've talked about God's judgment, God's wrath, God's anger. It seems kind of like a depressing (laughs) thing to talk about, but it's something that's in the Word. And it's the next subject matter we come to in chapter 2. And uh, it's, it's really, I pray that as we go through this, that you'll have a better understanding of God's righteous judgment and that it will give you a better understanding in turn of who God is and his attribute and his characters, his character, attributes and his character, and uh, hopefully it will encourage you in your walk in the Lord. So I just want to read our text for us this morning, Romans chapter 2, and I want to read down to verse 5. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very things, the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on these who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things, and yet do them yourself? that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's judgment will be revealed. Here in, in uh, chapter 2 of Romans, we see that Paul begins to address the Jews. And a lot of people believe in chapter 1, he was addressing those who are of the Gentile background. And so he listed off a bunch of sins that God's wrath would be poured out against. And it sounds like pretty bad people, which they were. Uh, And then here in chapter 2, he begins to change uh, the direction of his teaching, you might say. Uh, Remember, we talked about in Romans chapter 1, sins like idolatry and sexual immorality and homosexuality and a long list of destructive relational sins that God's anger went out against. And I'm sure 
Paul, being a Jew himself and a former Pharisee, he knew that his fellow Jews were watching this whole dialogue here and and realizing that, yep, you know what, Paul, you're right. Give it to those Gentiles. They deserve it. And uh, those pagan sinners, I mean, they they were totally, I think, on Paul's side at this point. And they would smugly be thinking, thank God that I'm not like those awful Gentile sinners. And we saw in chapter 1 where man actually abandons their God and God abandons their, uh, his men. God abandons man there to the consequence of their own sin as a result of that. And so you see the wrath of God kind of unfolding there in chapter 1. And by the time you get to the end of chapter 1, you're probably asking the question, well, what if you're not involved in any of this stuff? What if you're not involved in idolatry or sexual immorality or homosexuality or a long list of those things that, that disrupt our own relationships with people? What if we're the kind of person that is kind of a good guy? Maybe a moral individual. Maybe you come to church each week. Maybe you work hard to provide for your family. Maybe you love and respect your wife. Maybe you care for your children. And you're thinking, yeah, Paul, give it to these pagans. (laughs) These people that practice these things. I would never do anything like that. What about the moral people? The people who aren't murderers. The people who aren't drug addicts. The people who aren't liars and thieves and fornicators. What about them? The adulterers. What about the people that don't practice these things? The people who are basically good, moral folks. They haven't abandoned any sense of their right and wrong. They bring their families up in a good American way. What about the people who don't partake in these things, Paul? Where do they fit in God's judgment? Or do they fit in God's judgment? And I think a lot of people who are moral, basically, there are a lot of people in the world today that are, live by a moral standard that we could look at and say, wow, they're, they're good people. You look at a lot of people from the Mormon faith. They're good family people. They provide for their families. They provide. They're involved in their community and in their church. They just serve a different Christ than we do. <laughs> But they're good moral people. And they would probably agree with what Paul was saying against all these immoral people in chapter 1. This godless, pagan society. And you know what? When you look at the history of the world, from the very beginning, you've always had moral people. You've always had people that kind of, basically, they're, they're on the outside, they're okay. They're basically good people. But I want to tell you this morning that morality doesn't equal salvation. Morality won't get you saved. Romans chapter 3 verse 23, it says that all fall short, all have sinned. What does that mean? It means all. Somebody asked me one time, well, what about the Pope? Do you think the, the Pope is a sinner? I said, I don't have to think. I know. Based on Scripture. But moral people are not necessarily true believers, true followers of Christ. Even though they want to uphold 
kind of an external moral virtue, a value system, you might say. They get frustrated because they can't maintain that, that system of their own values. They find themselves constantly coming up short because they cannot restrain their own sinfulness that lies within. So what do they do? They cover a really dark and sin-filled heart with a cloak, a cloak of light. They pretend to be something they're not. Remember when I was younger and I was living with my sister and brother-in-law, we found this old bearskin head and everything. So we thought it'd be funny to, to go up in the, I went up in the woods and put this bearskin over me and hid behind a pine tree and my sister and brother-in-law were walking along the trail. <laughs> Scare my sister, you know. So I came out with this thing on her. And then she took off running. She, was, she thought it was a bear. Why? Because I was acting like a bear. I looked like a bear. I had a bear skin on me. That's what these people do. They have really a sin-filled, darkened heart in life, but they put on a cloak of light. They put on something to make them look like something else. And when you come to the bottom line, basically the whole Christian gospel, the whole Christian faith, can only be understood if you understand that you're guilty before God. That's the first step. It doesn't matter whether you're the immoral person of chapter 1 that Paul goes on or the moral person that he begins to talk about in chapter 2. Whether they're Gentile or whether they're Jew, it makes no difference. We're all guilty before a holy God. So in chapter 2, Paul begins to kind of zero in on the, the, the morally correct people. Religiously, he probably had in mind those of the Jewish faith. Simply because it was those of the Jewish faith that didn't, they tried not to partake in all these outwardly sinful behavior. Whereas the pagan, who didn't even know God and didn't care about God, they would go do whatever they want. But the Jew had to kind of bring up a, a, a cloak of righteousness. But it's interesting, he doesn't really name them here in chapter 2. He doesn't name them really until you get all the way down to verse 17. In verse 17, he finally says, but if you call yourself a Jew, (laughs) then he really kind of lowers the boom on them. But he's really, I think he has them in mind. Because up until now, they've been probably applauding Paul. Yeah, go after those Gentiles, Paul. Those of the Jewish faith, us in the Jewish faith, we don't have to worry about this judgment from God for the simple reason that we're God's people. But he doesn't just start off naming them right away. And that's the way it is in the Bible. If you look at the prophet Amos, he, he took the same approach in Amos 1 and 2 where he begins by condemning all the foreign nations around Israel. And just as the Jews started cheering him on and, yeah, go, go get him, Amos. Get, you know, you'd let those pagan nations have it. Then all of a sudden, he moves in on their sins. And he turns the light on them. And it's the same thing with Nathan and David, remember? Nathan's describing all this stuff. And he says, well, what about you? <laughs> oh, wait a minute. And so Paul, from his own background, knew that he was dealing with not only pagan Gentiles who didn't care about God at all, totally lost, 
But he was also dealing with a religious element that knew who God was, knew their, thought they had a relationship with God, and really thought that they were righteous in and of themselves. They were self-righteous. And I don't know about you, but if you've ever tried to witness or share Christ with somebody who is self-righteous, I'll take a total pagan over somebody like that any day of the week to share the gospel with. Because usually the total pagan's already caught up in a vice. You know, their marriage is destroyed. They're addicted to some kind of substance and they're, they're on the street and they're just down and out. They're at the bottom of the barrel. And so when you say, hey, I can give you some hope, there's forgiveness in Christ, you know, they're interested in that. But when you're dealing with people who are self-righteous, it's, they're very different. It's a very different character. It's a very different sin. And that's what it is, self-righteousness. It is a sin. Because it's hard to get them to see and condemn themselves. Because they don't think there's anything wrong with themselves. It keeps people from seeing their need for the gospel. Self-righteousness believes the lie that we can be good enough in and of ourselves somehow to qualify for heaven. Therefore, we don't need a Savior who died on a cross to pay the penalty for our sins. I mean, maybe these people in chapter 1 do, do you understand? I mean, they've been, you know, they're, they're committing adultery and immorality and homosexuality, all these horrible sins. They need a Savior. But I mean, I'm, I'm religious. I go to the synagogue. I practice my faith all the time. I live by a different standard than those people. They need a Savior, but, but not me. Because I'm basically a pretty good person. God wouldn't judge a good guy like me, would he? Or would he? I'm reminded of the little story with a little 12-year-old. Y'all remember going to the dentist, right? And uh, this little 12-year-old was in the dentist office, and he had to fill out, you know, a little name thing. So his mom let him do it, and he was writing this in. Came down to one of the subjects on the, uh, the paper. It said hobbies. So a little 12-year-old thought, well, you know, I'm going to win the favor of my dentist, right? No kid likes to go to the dentist, so at least you want the dentist on your side. So he wrote down under hobbies, he wrote swimming and flossing. (laughs) He wanted his dentist on his side. He wanted his dentist to what? Like him. But that story, as humorous as it may be, it reflects how we all want to portray ourselves, beloved, as something better than we really are. That's just who we are. We want to make a good impression. But when we do that, a lot of times we forget scriptures like Hebrews 4.13. It says, all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. In Hebrews 4.12, it says, God basically knows the very thoughts. He knows the intentions of our hearts. He knows what we're going to speak before we even speak it. And someday, we're going to stand before him and give an account of our lives. So we must judge our sins on the kind of the, the, the honest, with an honest assessment. And we want to definitely guard against being self-righteous. So here he begins, and, and I want you to understand that he kind of lays out here all the way down through verse 16, principles of righteous judgment of God. And the first one we want to look at today, and that's knowledge. The six principles are knowledge, truth, guilt, deeds, impartiality, and motive. But the first one is knowledge. 
And so Paul, first of all, he wants to acknowledge that there are people in this world who maybe not, do not do things as bad as the people in chapter 1. And so he begins to expose here in chapter 2 what we would call the self-righteous person or the moralist. We need to understand that there's a certain knowledge that we all have received. And when you come to the Gentile, they don't have as much knowledge, obviously, as the Jew. And the problem with the the, the Jew at this point in time was that they thought of a couple different things. They thought that basically they would be saved through their association with the nation Israel, just like a lot of them do today. Because of their physical and religious identification with Israel, the Jewish people basically assumed that they were exempt from God's judgment. They were God's chosen people, which they are. They expected to be regarded. They expected to be treated not as individuals, but as a nation. See, we're all in this together. That was their thinking. They thought there was no consequence for their own personal sin because they believed that somehow there was salvation by being part of the nation of Israel. They also believed that there was salvation by covenant. They also believed in salvation by their covenant with God. Today we would call something like this sacramentalism, which basically means that you have to do something to be saved. Back then they would have said, well, we're circumcised the eighth day. We adhere to such sacraments as this and that. They were in a covenant. And the basic thinking was that, hey, if you do these certain things, that God is looking on you and he's not going to hold your sin in account. And you know what? That's not too far from what people think today, even in the church, even in the Protestant church. In some Protestant churches, you have babies that are baptized as infants. Why are they baptized as infants? Well, it basically, if you ask them, it, it enters them into a covenant, covenant theology. And then when you're 12, you're what? You're confirmed. And see, these sacraments are there to guarantee that that child will have a place in God's kingdom and not be condemned with the world, even as a little infant. I believe God has a special allotment for infants. I think we can see that even in the Old Testament, that there's a certain grace given there. So the Jews believe that by keeping these traditions, their religion, by being sacramentally attached to a covenant with God, they were exempt from his judgment. And there's people like that even, I would even venture to say in our own church today. There's people that have been baptized, go to church for years, keep all the rules. They think they're moral. They're self-righteous people. They don't think that they'll ever be judged by God. And sometimes they're some of the hardest people to reach with the gospel of Christ because they think they know it all. They got it all figured out. They know all the Christian terms. They become familiar with the church, how it works, why, what goes on. It's much easier to reach out to someone who's a reprobate who's never been to church and see them gloriously saved by the gospel of Christ. But here in chapter 2, with, with great clarity, Paul begins to point out that the ethical, the moral person without Christ, whether you're Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter, they will find themselves in the same hell as the pagan idolater. 
And if you don't think that was news to the Jews of the day, it was. And what his argument is here is if the Gentile is without excuse, then the Jew is even more so without excuse. And so it really comes down to a basic of their knowledge. How has God revealed himself to him? And we've gone over these before, so we don't have to spend a lot of time here. But he starts off there in verse 1. He says, therefore, that ties it back to the idea that even though these people committed all these hideous things, there's no excuse for them before God. He turns his laser on the righteous Jew, self-righteous Jew, and he says, therefore, you have no excuse, O man. Just because you're doing all this religious stuff, you're still without excuse before a holy God. Well, how does God reveal himself? Well, he does it through natural revelation. We've seen this in Scripture. We saw that in verses 19 to 20 of Romans chapter 1. It was clear whether you were Jew or Gentile, you knew the truth through natural revelation. The obvious existence of God, just look around at the creation around you. And what was true of the Gentiles, also true of the Jew. But also, not just natural revelation, but also through conscience. He says in verse 14 here, in in, uh, Romans chapter 2, verse 14, he says, For when Gentiles do not have, who do not have the law, right? They don't have the law of God. That was given to the Jews. So the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. Kind of sounds confusing. What he's saying is basically the basic moral person who goes out and says, Hey, do you want to go to the store and steal something? The basically good moral person would say, No, that's wrong. Well, where do they get that? God has given that revelation in their heart. Even though they may not own a Bible, they still know it's wrong to take somebody else's stuff. God has given that through our conscience. And so what he's saying in verse 14 is the Gentiles, they don't have the law of God, and yet they do what the law requires even though they don't have the law. Why do they do that? So both Jews and Gentiles have this innate knowledge given by God of right and wrong via their conscience. Our little granddaughter, Gabby, she went through a little time where she was getting in trouble a lot, just mouthing off or whatever, and Crystal would discipline her. And uh, after the discipline, you know, through the discipline process, she would confess and say, yeah, that was wrong, and I'm sorry. She started doing something that was a little odd. She started confessing things, even though she didn't physically do them yet. So she'd run in the kitchen and say, Mom, I have a confession to make. And Crystal was like, okay, what'd you do now? Well, I didn't do anything. But when Mason said this, my brother said this to me, I was thinking this. <laughs> and I just want to confess. <laughs> and it was, it was kind of neat to see that kind of a heart. Her conscience was telling her what her heart was telling her to do, even though she was restraining it. She wouldn't physically do it, but she knew in her mind she was thinking of doing something bad. Her mom would say, you can't have any more candy. And she'd come back and say, Mom, I have to apologize. I'm sorry, but I was sitting on the couch and I was just eating candy in my mind the whole time. You know, crazy, right? It was her conscience. We all have that. Well, thank you for spending time with us here today on Graceful Truth, the ministry of Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. 
It's our prayer here at Graceful Truth that God would reveal His grace to your hearts through the teaching of His Word each week. And we trust you're currently involved in a Bible teaching church in your area. If not, we'd love to have you come and visit us here at Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. We meet each Sunday morning for our praise and worship service at 10 a.m. We offer nursery care and Sunday school classes for our children up to grade five. And if you would like to encourage us here at Graceful Truth, please give us a call at Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. Our phone number is 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. We meet at 2225 Euclid Avenue here in Redwood City. Directions are on our website, gracefultruth.org, or again, simply call 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. And again, we'd love to have you join us for worship. Simply call for directions or go to our website, gracefultruth.org. While you're at our website, make sure to check out the resource materials available from us here at Graceful Truth, including past programs of Graceful Truth that you can download for free. Gracefultruth.org is where to go. If you're writing to us, our address is 2225 Euclid Avenue. That's 2225 Euclid Avenue. We're here in Redwood City. The zip code is 94061. And again, our phone number is 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. We thank you for spending time with us today and trust we'll see you next week at this same time for another broadcast of Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse.